Well, welcome to Whitestone this morning. Thank you for springing forward with us. Um, there will likely be some people that walk through in just a little while. Try not to applaud out loud. I've been that person before. Um, before I get into the Word this morning, I want to read, um, read something that, um, that I've, I've written over the course of the past couple of days. And it just says this, and this will, you'll get this probably in an email or e-news here. Uh, shortly. Uh, this is not my letter of resignation or anything like that, so don't get excited. Um, usually when a pastor stands up and reads that letter, it's at the end of the service. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it right now. This just says a note of thanks to Whitestone Church after 20 years. Uh, as I continue to reflect on the events of last Sunday, I'm still at a loss for words to express my gratitude for the outpouring of kindness that was lavished upon my family by this church. It honestly doesn't seem possible that 20 years have passed so quickly. I feel like we're still just getting started, still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. Um, To my fellow staff members, it's a gift to serve alongside you. You make me a better person, a better man, a better husband and father, a better friend, and a better pastor. You inspire me with your intentionality, the way you know what speaks love to me and you go out of your way to do it well. It's a privilege to go to war with you and for you when necessary. To my fellow elders, thanks for holding my hands up when I haven't had the strength to do it myself. Thanks for inspiring me with your faithful friendship, for holding me accountable, and for your love for the bride in this place. Um, To my family, uh, thanks for being willing to take this journey with me. The ride has not always been an easy one for you, I know that. You've given up a lot, and you've given a lot. You've lost friends because of my calling, but you've become who you are in large part of what's happened in this place. I couldn't be more proud of the people that you are and the ones that you're still becoming. And to my church family, to all of you who've shared the stage with me in the band or sat in a small group with me, Thank you for allowing me to be myself, for following over and over, even when the ideas seemed crazy, and I wouldn't have blamed you if you didn't. Thanks for laughing with me and at me. Thanks for believing in me much more than I believe in myself. And thanks for allowing me in your hospital rooms, your living rooms, your gravesides, your weddings, All of them have been sacred places. You make me want to become more like the man that you think that I am. And I love you all. Let's pray together. Father, it's a gift to serve in this place with people like these. Um, I pray that your spirit would move in this place today. That, um, That perfect love would cast out fear in some people. Um, that maybe some strongholds would, would be broken, some chains would be loosed, and freedom would be experienced. I pray for my friends, um, my brothers and sisters who, who are grieving deep loss today. Um, but I thank you for ultimate healing for my sister Carolyn. I smile to think of, of her right now. And so I pray that that kind of hope, um, winning in the end, 
might give us hope to live well now. Um, meet some people where they are. Um, use your word to, to, uh, to just do something that we can't manufacture. And that's my prayer over this place. And all God's people said, okay, got that out of the way. Now, in spite of everything I just read, let me put a caveat on what I'm about to say, okay? This is one of the texts in the Bible that I already know you are not going to listen to me, okay? I'm going to read it, I'm going to preach it, and some of you are going to say, yeah, I agree with that here, and you're going to immediately discount it unless the Spirit does something really special, and that's what I'm praying that He's going to do. And so, with that said, let's make this about Him and not about us. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 22. And this is what the Word says. The eye of the lamp is the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is a darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I want to ask you a question as we get started here. How do you see the world? How do you see the world? He starts this passage by saying the eyes are the lamp of the body. And if the eyes are good, the whole body's full of light. But if the eyes are not good, then what we think is light might really be darkness. So in other words, in your life, you might have defined some things as good that are not good at all. How do you see the world? When you look at why you are here, what's the main thing? What's it about? How do you see the world? See, I'm going to say this. How do you see the world? The world is not about accumulation. It's about distribution. If you see the world through kingdom eyes, it's not about accumulating things. It's not about collecting things. It's about seeing things flow through you to the places they need to go. Does that make sense? 
How do you see the world? If you see the world as you're here to collect as many trinkets as you possibly can, you might well spend your whole life doing that and end up in a very sad and lonely place. How do you see the world? Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it, said it this way. Earthly goods are given to be used, not collected. In the wilderness, God gave Israel the manna every day. And they had no need to worry about food and drink. Indeed, if they kept any manna over to the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciple must receive his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, he spoils not only the gift, but himself as well. For his heart is set on accumulated wealth. And it makes a barrier between himself and God. Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation and our God. Jesus said, give me this day my daily bread, right? But we pray, God, today would you give me enough, enough stuff so we have bread for a week, or a month, or a year? I remember a few months ago I preached a sermon and I said, I said this, you are meant to be pipes, not ponds. You remember that? You're meant to be pipes. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. See, the reason that we're here, the way we should see the world, is that we're supposed to be a conduit for the blessings of God to come through us to other people, not ponds which become stagnant and just collect things and there's no outlet. Does that make sense? How do you see the world, people? Do you see yourself as a pipe? Or a pond? Do you see yourself spending all your days just accumulating things that you think this next thing will make me happy, but really it just becomes a ball and chain because the more we collect, the more we worry about what we have. Is that not true? How are your eyes? How do you see the world? How do you see your place in the world? It's about collecting things for you. Because Jesus says really clearly, you cannot serve two masters. He says you're either going to hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. See, we can't serve two masters, but we think we can. We think we can because we're, we're great at compromising, right? I mean, when it comes down to it, if it's something that our flesh is really crying out for, we can convince ourselves that the Spirit is saying something that the Spirit's not saying. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Brock got up here and he talked about oaths. He talked about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And the thing that I thought was just brilliant about that is he talked about all those conversations that we have, trying to convince ourselves and rationalize. Well, you know, I, yeah, I should be able to do this because I know, I know I could do this with it, but it's time for some me time. And he said, who, are you talk, who do you think you're talking to when you have those conversations? It's not, the, it's not the Spirit. Because the Spirit says, hey, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and then all, anything else is from who? The evil one. This, this stuff all connects, right? It's all start, part of the same sermon. The commentator James Montgomery Boyce writes of a story told long ago by a man named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a story about a farmer. This farmer comes in and, and he happily reports to his wife that his best cow had given birth to twin calves. Two little baby cows. One of them was white 
and one of them was red. Okay, so how many cows are there? One of them is, and one of them, we're on the same page, people. Doesn't this feel good? The farmer says, you know, I've been led of the Lord to dedicate one of these calves to him. We'll raise them together, and then when the time comes to sell them, we will keep the money from the one calf and give the money from the other calf to the Lord. Okay? So this is the farmer's plan. And his wife asks, well, which one are you going to dedicate to the Lord? The red one or the white one? And he answered that there was no need to decide that right now since he was going to treat them both alike. Okay? Noble pursuit. Farmer, best cow, two baby calves, wants to raise them, sell them both, give the money from one to the Lord, keep the other one for himself. Several months later, same farmer, came into the kitchen looking very sad. When his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, the Lord's calf has died. (laughs) The wife says, but I thought you said you weren't going to decide which one was the Lord's. And the farmer had already worked it out in his head, and he says to his wife, Oh, yes, I had always determined that it was to be the white one, and the white one has died. Sadly, this is the case for most of us, right? When we don't purpose in our heart in the beginning, when we leave wiggle room, whenever something dies, it's the Lord's portion that dies. Whenever we get to the end of the month and there's not enough money to pay all the bills, guess, guess what part of our paycheck died? It was the Lord's part, right? Because surely the Lord wouldn't want me to take this loss, right? Guys, think about how that pertains to the truths we see all through Scripture. I mentioned this last week. In the book of Acts, Barnabas felt led to sell a piece of property and give all of it to the Lord, and it was a beautiful thing. But then the very next thing that happens is Ananias and Sapphira decide, well, it worked out for Barnabas. We're going to sell it, but we're just going to keep a little bit for ourselves and make people think we did what Barnabas did. And God didn't take kindly to that. You cannot serve two masters. You can't wait until the time comes and think you're going to make the right decision unless you've purposed in your heart. I look back at the book of uh, Daniel. When Daniel was taken into captivity, and, and he, he's, he's given the opportunity to eat the finest foods, drink the finest wines from the king's table. But in, in Daniel chapter 1, I think it's verse 8, it says this, But Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Before he was ever tempted with the, with the stuff on the table in front of him, he committed his heart to being set apart. He didn't say, well, I'm just going to wait, and you know, if they put it in front of me, I'll, I'll have the willpower at that moment. Guys, when it comes to our stuff, freedom is found in letting things flow through us. Whenever we start collecting things for ourselves and holding on to them, they quickly become something that stands between us and God. You know this to be true, right? We know this to be true, but yet we are still drawn to stuff so much. Why is it bad? Because we worry about it. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to worry about. I really, I mean, I think my dream home would be on a lake, you know? 
Just be on a lake. It didn't have to be a huge lake. Just a lake and a boat dock. You know, that, that, and then a boat and a jet ski and a water slide. A double-decker deck so that the, the grandkids could jump off into the water. I could keep going. But you know what would happen if I had all that stuff? Because I know people that have that stuff. I like to visit those places, you know? But they spend all their time taking care of all that stuff, right? For, for other people to enjoy. And I'm, I've got specific people in mind that are great, godly people. And I think, gosh, I couldn't do it for a day. I couldn't take care of all that stuff because my heart would be too attached to it, right? Worry. Anybody struggle with it? I'm going to give you three reasons that I think worry should have no place in our lives, okay? And ladies, you can choose to stop listening if you want to. You can choose to just totally discount what I'm about to say, Valencia. We had a conversation last night, and she was not having it. That is not how we're made. Nobody can do that. I said, it's not my words, it's in the Bible. By the way, that never goes well with the women in your house when you end a conversation. Or you say that thinking it'll end a conversation. It just starts another conversation that you don't want to have, okay? Worry is, first thing I would say is worry is irreverent. Get rid of worry in your life because it's irreverent. You might say it's irreligious. It, it, it means you don't trust God as the creator. It means you don't trust God as the sustainer. He gave you this life, but now you have to take it back from him because he's not big enough. That's what we are saying to God when we worry. Oh, and it seems when we couch it in the context, I just care for my family. I just care so deeply about these things. No, it's irreverent. It's like saying, your kid's saying to you, Daddy, I just don't trust you. Is there anything more hurtful that a parent can hear from a child? That, that they just don't trust you to take care of them? Worries irreverent people. And God doesn't like it. The second reason I think you need to get rid of it is it's irrelevant. It doesn't change anything, right? Um, there's some things I'm afraid of. You want to know what I'm afraid of, Byron? Go ahead. I'm afraid of snakes. I don't like snakes. I don't like them. I go like all um, Darth Vader, like when he killed the whole village, women and children and everybody. You know, with a shovel. I hate snakes. I worry about snakes. I don't like birds when they come in my house. They make me nervous. I don't know why, because I love word, birds. I've got a shirt that says bird nerd. But birds are supposed to be outside. When they come in the house and they're flapping their wings and they're diving on your head, I don't like that, okay? I don't like bats. I don't like bats at all. I had an encounter with a bat in my kitchen that ended poorly for the bat. I was in Haiti on this last trip, okay? And Larry Turner is in his, his room, and he comes out and I says, I can't sleep in there. We're at the hotel in Les Anglais. I said, what's wrong, Larry? There's a bat in there. I'm thinking, where's my tennis racket? 
But there's a lady on the trip who is made from a, cut from a different mold, okay? And she, she like, grew up on a, she said, where is it? She walks in, and she's just going to cuddle it and hold it and release it into the wild. I'm not wired that way. I'm not wired that way. I don't like catheters. I've never had one, but that seems horrifying to me, <laughs> right? There are things that I'm, I just don't like them. At the dentist's office, that little, that little weapon they use, the little hook thing that just scrapes and scrapes. And sc- I hate those things. Scare me to death. You would think. There are all these things that I don't like. But let me tell you the truth. Me worrying about those things doesn't change any of them, does it? And if I obsess about those things, and that's what I choose to set my heart on, then it's, it's just not a good way to live. Because when we live by fear, people, when we live by fear, we might never encounter those things that we're afraid of, but we never really live. Does that make sense to you? If, if we just obsess about the things that we think might happen or the situations we might encounter, then we end up flying to Los Angeles and find out the, the thing we're going to, Brian Williams, was canceled because of the coronavirus. It's happening all over. We live by fear. What are you afraid of, people? I, you know what I'm afraid of. And there's some other things I'm afraid of. I mean, I'm, I hate cancer. I've lost so many people to cancer. I'm thinking, God, anything but cancer. You know? But me worrying about that doesn't keep me from getting cancer. Right? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being alone? Are you afraid of what other people think about you? Are you afraid of rejection? Of being overlooked? Of failing? Of sickness? Of death? Of of just becoming old and irrelevant? What are you afraid of? Let me give you some examples. See, because I think fear and worry might be two of the biggest enemies of a faith-based life. Okay? It might not be the most destructive sin that you get involved in, but it's definitely the most debilitating. Because fear and worry can paralyze us and, and take so much of our spiritual energy away. Have you noticed when you watch the news how the headlines are always based on fear. It's always like your microwave is going to kill you. Just news at 11. You know, it's, it's always something that's going to be horrible. Do you realize that we, we teach our children to avoid the bad parts of town and subconsciously teach them that we're supposed to fear people who don't look like us? Kayla was getting gas and, and kind of over in the Lonsdale area yesterday. And I'm on the phone with her. Hey, that gas, case, that, that gas station's kind of sketch. Stay on the phone with me. I'm thinking, she spent two months in Cambodia and Thailand, and her pastor, father, professional Christian, is worried about her getting gassed. Guys, the fear, it just creeps in naturally, doesn't it? I'm just being a good father. I'm just caring for my daughter. No, you're not. Remember in the 1980s when they were telling us that sweet and low was going to give us all cancer? I've had a lot of sweet and low, and it hadn't happened yet. Do you remember, remember in the 90s when, when pot, the, the bag phones came out? We finally had, you know, the huge, ginormous cell phones with the big antenna. 
they're going to give us brain cancer too, right? That's my antenna. It was, it was about that big around and it just flopped in the wind up above your head. Remember in 1999 when we thought the world was going to end? You know, Y2K and everybody stocks up stuff in their cellar. They build a cellar. They didn't have a cellar, but they had to fill it up with stuff. Nothing happened. 2003, the SARS epidemic. And I don't make light of these things because a lot of people died, but it was like everyone's going to get this, and everyone didn't. In 2006, it was the bird flu. In 2009, it was the swine flu. In 2020, it's the coronavirus. Guys, multiple iterations, and people cower down and start canceling their lives. Guys, the same God is still in charge. I, I can touch my face. I might, not, I might get it, I might not, but it's not up to me, right? Live your life. Don't cower to fear. The point is this. What am I saying? Whether those things happen or not is not the issue. The point is being, that being fearful about them and worrying about them does nothing to change the outcome. Third reason I'd say it's, it's bad is it's just irresponsible. God gives you so much energy in a day, right? I mean, you've only got so much in you to give away, and how much do we give away just making little things look so much bigger than they are? I read this in, uh, in John Corson's commentary of the, of, of the book of Matthew, and, and he said this, and this was astounding to me. I don't know if it's scientifically true or not. Just because somebody writes it doesn't mean it's true, okay? But, but just theoretically stick with me on this, okay? He says, I once read that it takes 60 trillion droplets of fog to cover seven city blocks. 60 trillion droplets of fog to cover seven city blocks. Now, 60 trillion droplets or seven city blocks worth of fog can close down an airport. It can shut down a city. But yet, if you condensed those 60 trillion fog droplets, you would end up with only a half of a glass of water. Half a glass of water in... It's not that big, right? It's not, it's not that, but, but if you divide it into 60 trillion droplets of fog, it can shut down a city. That's how worry works. You begin with something that's really small, only a half a glass of water, but you start thinking about it and wrestling with it and wondering, how's this going to work out? How am I going to deal with that? And before long, you can't see straight. Your mind is in a fog. Your spiritual life is shut down. Where once you were flying and you were soaring like eagles, no, the airport's closed. Because we take little things that we can't control and we spread them out into this big thing that really messes with us. Does that make sense to you? Guys, there are bad things that you're walking through. I know that. But you worrying about it, when Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, it's hard to please God. When we just listen to Jesus and say, I know you're saying that, but this is the way I'm wired. Worry equals a lack of faith, people. Period. End of discussion. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said that. He said, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. He tells us we're supposed to have a childlike faith, right? Think about this. I don't know if this happened in your life. It's happened in my life. You remember all the long family road trips? I mean, we would, we would purposefully 
when we were still going to Houston, Angie's folks still lived there, we would leave at like 7 o'clock at night, load up the minivan, put the kids in the back. They're all tucked in. They've got their little, their little VHS tape, like console that sat in the floor that had a screen on it about that big. And they're craning sideways, and it's on the floor. Horrible design for a minivan. If anybody drives a Nissan Quest, I'm sorry. Anyway, that was us, and they're back there until they fall asleep with their necks crooked from trying to watch that thing, and they sleep like babies all night long. This happened in your families? I mean, when you put your kids in the back, Brock, I mean, they're not really worried about, well, maybe yours are beating each other senseless, so it's probably a bad, bad example. But the kids in the back are on the same trip as the parents in the front. But my wife, sitting in the seat next to me, is not tucked in. She's like every bump in the road. Oh, my gosh! <laughs> Afraid beyond belief that I'm going to fall asleep. You know, um, and do not veer over and do the for even a second. Right? Right? Same trip. Totally different reactions to it. Why? It's because the kids in the back trusted who was driving. And somebody in the front thought they could do a better job. Right? Is that... I love that woman. Oh, love that woman. Is that not a picture of worry, though? I mean, isn't that... Do you trust? Do you trust that you can just fall asleep in the back seat because you trust who's driving? Who's in control of things that you're not in control of? Guys, he gives us these examples so that we can say, you know, that does make sense. God's a far better father and driver than I could ever be. And just because, just because that's the first time she's ever said amen in one of my sermons. Just because I, I'm nervous, just because I'm not real comfortable, doesn't mean I have to resort to worry because there's another option, faith. But trusting in the driver. Because, listen, this is what Jesus says. Your Father knows that you need all those things. But this is the truth. He also knows how much of them you really need. And the lack of faith comes in is when we think, well, He doesn't really know what I need. So I have to, I have to worry about it. Guys, it's a horrible horrible way to live okay and so about to land the plane you ready so if you're not supposed to do that if you're not supposed to be anxious about the stuff food clothing provisions situations if you're not supposed to be worried about those things what is the spiritual the kingdom alternative look at verse 33 because there's a big old butt in this in this verse right here, and it changes everything. That but, verse 33, it says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But, instead of those things, stop, go this way, don't do that, do this, don't worry, seek first the kingdom of God. What does it really look like to seek the kingdom of God? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Heard it my whole life. 
It's one of those spiritual terms that just, it's a church word that just goes whoosh. What does, it, what does it mean for you today to seek first the kingdom? William Barclay in his, his commentary said this, We know how in our lives a great love can drive out every other concern. A great love can, can drive... You remember when you first, you first realized that, that your wife was the one for you? Or that, you know, that, that young love kind of feeling. You remember how you couldn't think about anything else? No, don't think about that anymore, okay? Go back to Jesus, okay? But that great love, you remember the first time you saw your baby? You remember the first time you held him and you thought, I, I can't, I, 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 my, my heart's about to explode. Your priorities all change, right? When you're motivated by a great love, it can drive out every other concern. Barclay says this, such a love can inspire man's work, intensify his study, purify his life, dominate his whole being. It was Jesus' conviction that worry is banished when God becomes the dominating pursuit of our life. The love of God, the kind of love that when the guy found the, the, the treasure buried in the field, he went in joy and sold everything he had because he wanted to buy that field. That's the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a man who finds a treasure in the field, okay? This is all connected. Unless you treasure him, you won't pursue him. That's why he says where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be. It's a matter of proximity, okay? If your heart is here with your stuff, that's what you're going to worry about. But if your heart's there with him, you're going to seek first the kingdom, and you won't have room for worry. See, he said, he said this. He said, pray like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth. We're supposed to pray like that. And so once we pray like that, we're supposed to be looking for the kingdom coming. How does the kingdom come? It expands when we go out and we do what we're created to do. It's going to expand through you walking into those divine appointments we talked about last week that we're not supposed to do in front of people to be seen by them, but we're supposed to be motivated by love. Seek first the kingdom by walking into those things. Not worry about your stuff. Pray that the kingdom would come and then look for it coming. I miss having little babies around that got excited about Easter egg hunts. I miss, I miss that, you know? And so if any of you want to send your kids to my house on, on Easter, I won't be there because I'm going to be at somebody else's house watching their Easter egg hunt, okay? The anticipation to go out looking for these things. You know, looking for eggs. And I'm not talking about, we, we hid some eggs at my house no one's ever found. You hide them. I'm not talking about the ones that are just laying in the grass. I mean, and I'm talking about it's up like in the fork of a tree. You've got to get a ladder to get up and see it. Those are great Easter egg hunts. That's like looking for the kingdom. Just looking. Where do I see it? Is it coming here? Is it, is it supposed to be an act of kindness? Am I, am I supposed to give this to that person? Am I supposed to just be a servant to that person? Am I supposed to make much of them? That's seeking first the kingdom. That's the first way. It's the first way that we get away from worrying. But then there's another one. It's, it's right at the end. It's right after that. It says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day 
is its own trouble. Guys, acquire the art of living today. One day at a time. Living today because we're not promised tomorrow. Keep your heart on today. 2 Corinthians, Apostle Paul says this in, in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. Remember Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. He's saying that because he doesn't want you to lose your heart. Okay? Lay up treasures in heaven where nothing can get to your heart. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, whatever it is, in comparison to the treasure in heaven, is light and momentary. Some of you, if you could slap me right now, you would. You know, How dare you tell me that what I'm going through right now is light and momentary? I'm not saying that. I'm saying in comparison to the joy waiting, to, to, in comparison to what Carolyn Duncan is experiencing right now, Terry, that 13 years or 11 years was worth it for her. If, it's, if it got her to where she's going, it made her the person that she became because of it. It's light momentary now for her. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen. Because if you just look at what you can see, it looks awful. But compared to this eternal weight of glory, it can't compare. That's why he tells us to look at the birds and the flowers. Guys, I walked out in my backyard today, this morning really early, and I, I looked down over this place, because you can almost see this place from my backyard, and I, there was just this, this, this heavy mist over it, and I just felt the Spirit saying, yeah, that's, that's me. And then these birds start chirping. And flying around, I see, I see buds of flowers starting to come up. And I realize God's at work in all of this. And it allowed me to breathe. When's the last time you just took a walk and you looked at what God's doing? That's why we're taking kids to Colorado. Because it's worth it just to get them to be in awe again. Or maybe for the first time of God and His creation. Live your life one day at a time. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then look for signs of the kingdom coming. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. They're really short in closing. Because you realize that you are some of the richest people in the whole world. Right here. Paul had words for you in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Guys, if God's blessed you, don't be proud about it. Don't trust in that, but trust in the God who gave it. This is what you're supposed to do, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Sounds like a great way to live, doesn't it? 
Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. My prayer for you is perfect peace. Not just kind of peace, not the absence of conflict. My prayer over this place is that we would stay our minds, we'd purpose in our hearts to seek first the kingdom. That we would really be a church marked by extravagant generosity. And then, if a calf dies, don't say it's the Lord's. He wants a living sacrifice for me. Pray with me. Father, I just pray that you would just open up the richness of this and just release us from a culture that screams everything opposite of what I've just talked about today. We want to be residents of this kingdom. And you say, this is what life in that kingdom is supposed to look like. And so why would we worry? God, we trust you. You're the best driver. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. Help us to focus not on what we see, but on the unseen things that are eternal. And may it change our today, change our tomorrow, change our forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship in this moment.